thank you for being a part of our church service today. It is our desire at Riverstone Church that God's Word will work in you to produce an abundant field life. To know more about the ministry or to support, visit riverstonechurch.net. May the Lord bless you today as you listen to this message. Amen. I was going to ask you guys to pray for me, but I think after those announcements, maybe you should pray for Chris instead. <clears throat> <laughs> That was such a good time of worship, wasn't it? It might, it might be a little self-serving, but I could have just stayed there for the rest of the day. I really could have. Thanks so much, Terry. I appreciate that. Uh, well, I am, I am very excited to share with you today something that I feel like uh, the Lord has, has put in front of me over these last, uh, really, uh, a couple years. And in some ways, I feel like, uh, I feel like a two-year-old at the bottom of a stairway. I, I was satisfied with where I was. But now I see something new, and I just, I just got to go higher. I just got to go up. I just got to go up. So uh, I want to I uh, just take a second and just say I, I really appreciate the pastoral staff here so much. Uh, Robert, as you're watching, and, and Chris and all the others, I learned so much from these men and women. I just want to uh, commend them to you uh, publicly. I, I am so pleased to be part of the family of Riverstone. I want to speak to you today about being people of his presence, people of his presence. And you should know something about that already because we are in the presence of the Lord this morning. Amen. I want to read to you a, a quote by uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones about revival. We talk about revival a lot around here, and, and maybe you'll see why. He's, he writes, The essence of a revival is that the Holy Spirit comes down upon a number of people together, upon a whole church, upon a number of churches, districts, or perhaps a whole country. That is what is meant by revival. It is, if you like, a visitation of the Holy Spirit. Or another term that's often been used is this, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What the people are conscious of is that it is as if something has suddenly come down upon them. The Spirit of God has descended into their midst. God has come down and is amongst them. A baptism, an outpouring, a visitation. And the effect of this is that they immediately become aware of His presence and of His power in a manner they have never known before. I would sum that up and say, what is revival if it is not the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit? Amen. We're going to go to our text in just a minute uh, out of Exodus. But first, let me just give you the quick uh, setting here, the quick context before what we read. We're looking at a time in Israel's history when the Hebrews had been delivered out of Egypt. We know that story well. Delivered from the hand of Pharaoh. And now here they are at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb three months later. The mountain is literally on fire and blazing. And Moses goes up and he's receiving the law. And while he's up there in this glorious display of God's might and majesty, what do the people do? They make a golden idol, a calf idol, and they begin to worship and revel while Moses is up there. Okay, so let's go to Exodus 33.3. If you would stand with me, let's just honor uh, the Lord's word. Starting at verse 3, Exodus 33. It says, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. This is God speaking. He's talking to Moses. But I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. We're going to skip down to verse 12 now. And Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people, unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? So the Lord said to Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. 
Father, we love you. We love your word and we ask for your presence to come into this house. Lord, I offer you my faltering lips and my human mind. I ask that you would take it and breathe upon it to speak to all of us, myself included. We love you today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Talking about people of his presence, we're going to have to go back, all the way back to the Garden of Eden briefly. And I want to talk about God with his people in history. It starts in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis, we read that they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, this is after they have sinned against him. And so the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But can you imagine the privilege that they had? God coming down and walking in the garden. They were perfect. They were sinless. They were innocent and childlike. But there was God's presence. Of course, we know what happens next. Uh, Adam and Eve sinned. They fell. And they had to leave the garden in God's presence. They were broken. Their fellowship was broken. So we're going to skip forward to the tabernacle in the wilderness. We're coming up upon the passage that I just read. So God looks down and he picks a man, Abram, and he calls him out. He makes great promises to him that he'll be a father of many nations. He has a son. He has a son. And Jacob and his descendants go down to Egypt. Pharaoh forgets Joseph. And he enslaves the Hebrews for 400 years. And they are crying out to God, the one God, the creator God, who called their father Abraham. Moses was sent to demand of Pharaoh, let my people go. God sent 10 plagues to display his glory. There was a Passover. We celebrate the Lord's Supper every month here. And we remember then the original Passover and, of course, Christ, the Passover lamb for us. They flee from Egypt to the Red Sea, and they are pursued by the Egyptians. So they're out. They're free, sort of. They're being led by Moses. But now they've come up against the Sea of Water. And they turn, and they look behind them, and Pharaoh and the Egyptians have changed their mind. But God shows up. A great cloud separates the Egyptians from the Hebrews. It's darkness on one side and light on the other. And God sends a wind and parts the sea and they cross on dry ground. Moses leads them to Mount Sinai. There's smoke. There's fire. There's an earthquake. A loud trumpet blast. There's thunder and lightning. It's an intense scene of God's glory coming down onto the mountain. And God is so concerned about his people that he would not destroy them that he says, Moses, put a wall around the mountain. Tell everybody they cannot go up. If they touch the mountain, they will die. But God's glory is there and his presence is with his people. But they really can't take that kind of his presence, that amount of his glory Remember, they told Moses, you go talk to God and tell us what he says, because they can't take that kind of glory. But while Moses is up there, he's on the mountain for 40 days. The Lord says this to him in Exodus 25, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. In Exodus 29, they, they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So can you see this trip that we've taken from the garden when God is present in his, in his glory in the cool of the day? His glory on the mountain at Sinai. And now God is doing something even more amazing than that. He's saying, Moses, I'm going to give you the exact plans for a tabernacle in the wilderness, and I'm actually going to dwell among this people. He gives Moses the plan. There's a, there's a wall. The entrance is on the east side. There's an outer court that has a bronze altar for sacrifice. There's a, a basin for washing. They had to wash before they entered uh, to the temple or the uh, tabernacle service and the tent of meeting, or they would die. 
There was a tent, and inside, uh, in the holy place, there was a golden lampstand. There was a table for bread for the, uh, the tribes of Israel. There was an altar of incense. And then in the, in, the, in the back of the holy place, the smallest place, it was called the most holy place. This was the place where only the high priest could go. This was the place where the ark of God was stored. The ark of God, this, this golden box, you couldn't even touch it. It had to be carried on long poles. They had, the Levites had to pick it up and carry it. They couldn't touch the ark because the ark symbolized God's very presence on the earth. There were cherubim at either end, and they were facing each other with their wings outstretched, but they were looking down at the cover of the box, which was called the mercy seat, the atonement cover, the mercy seat. That's where God spoke face-to-face, as it were, with Moses from the mercy seat. But the people rebelled. They worshipped the calf idol, and God threatened to destroy them, but Moses interceded for them. That takes us back to our text. God says, I promise to give you this land. I made a promise to Abram, and I'm going to keep it. Go into the land. Go into the land, I will give it to you, but I'm not going to go with you because I would destroy you on the way. I would destroy you. Can you see it's it's love mixed with judgment? Can you see that God loves them, he's keeping his promise to them, and yet he knows that he is too holy for this people. He is too holy. But Moses is not satisfied with that. Just as he interceded that God would not wipe them all out and start over, Moses says, if you won't go with us, please don't send us. We don't want to go without your presence. We can't go without your presence. So let's talk about after the tabernacle is dedicated and set up, this is what happens in Exodus 40. Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Here again is God's presence with his people. He enters the tabernacle, and not even Moses, the great prophet, the great man of God, could enter into the tabernacle. So what what was this presence, the presence of God that Moses could not do without? What did it provide for them for these 40 years that they were going to wander in the desert? One thing is it provided provision for them. There are 600,000 of them coming out of Egypt. Can you imagine feeding such a crowd? I know what happens if my wife is late from the grocery store, and there are only four of my kids. Okay? Moses has 600,000 raising a ruckus. When's mama going to be home? Right? God gave them water from a rock. He sweetened bitter water. God gave them manna and quail for 40 years. I'm not that great of a cook. If I had manna and quail... It probably looked like chicken nuggets every night. <laughs> what is it, Daddy? I don't know. Just pass the mustard. More mustard. But God provided everything they needed in those 40 years. He provided his protection and his power. They came against the Amalekites, and God gave them victory. This is not a battle-hardened group of soldiers. These are Hebrew slaves, and they've just come out, but God gives them victory over the Amalekites. And at that battle, God reveals himself. He begins revealing more of himself. He reveals himself as Jehovah Nissi, the Lord, my banner. And this is just the beginning of revealing himself. He instructs his people. He reveals to his people. He's giving them the law. He's giving them the moral law. This is what it means to be a people of God, a called out people. This is what is needed if you're going to come into my presence. Here's a ceremonial law for you to follow so that everything will be clean. And we know now this is, this is all a type of Christ. It's all looking forward to the work that Jesus was going to do. They didn't know that then. They knew they had a lot of rules, a list of regulations and things they had to follow because God God is holy, and he will destroy us. He will destroy us if we get too close, like a fire. 
But God gives them also cultural laws to separate them, to to set them apart from all the other people, to distinguish them. And he gives them a covenant that Yahweh would be their God and they would agree to obey his law. They weren't very good covenant keepers, but God did give them covenant with his presence. He distinguished them and he directed them. This cloud and this fire would come and it would settle over the tabernacle and it would stay there. And for as long as it was there, representing God's presence in his dwelling, they would stay. But when the cloud would lift and move on, they would have to pack it all up and follow the cloud wherever it went. They would follow the God until he sat down again and then they would pitch the tabernacle, everything back together, all the Israelites camping and they would stay there. So God's presence provided direction. The tabernacle moved with them all the 40 years there in the desert and into the promised land. Eventually, they had a king, King Saul. And 1 Samuel says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? He had disobeyed the Lord, and God rejected him. God said, or Samuel said to him, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So, King Saul, the first king, very tall guy, but he is rejected by the Lord, not because he isn't kingly in the eyes of the Israelites, but because he is disobedient to the Lord. And it says, and this is maybe the worst thing of all, in 1 Samuel 16 it says, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. Here again we see this tension, God wanting to be with his people, his presence near them, with them, yet they cannot obey. So it was David. David was given the kingdom and he went to Jerusalem. Now we're going to skip forward about 450 years later. God made a covenant with David for his descendants to reign forever. And he wanted to build a house for God. Not not just this tabernacle that was pitched and taken down and put up and down. and, And it's kind of small for now such a large nation. David wanted to build something grand, something royal for God. But David wasn't allowed to build it, but his son Solomon was. It was bigger than the original tabernacle. Solomon did build a temple, and he took the ark, and he put it in the most holy place. And this is what happened when it was dedicated. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. But even then, Solomon acknowledged, he said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So we see God is with his people in the garden. God is with his people at Mount Sinai. God is dwelling with them in the tabernacle. He's brought them into the promised land, and now God is with them in Jerusalem, in the temple that David designed and Solomon built. His presence is there. But how does that end? Well, after about 371 years, it was finally destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because the people's hearts were rebellious. Because of idolatry. They turned away from the one God. So it was destroyed. But already, God is speaking through his prophets. Before the captivity and and after, at the cusp of the captivity, God is speaking through his prophets of a new and a better covenant of his lasting presence with his people. This is what he said through Isaiah. I want you to listen as I, as I read these next couple quotes. Listen for spirit. Listen for presence. Listen to what he's, God is saying about how he's going to dwell with his people. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, for now and forever. Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their heart. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Robert uh, included in his message uh, the vision that Ezekiel had in chapter 37 of the dry bones. You remember that? Prophesied to the bones. Ezekiel did what he was told, and the bones rattled and come together. Well, that imagery, that vivid vision that Ezekiel had is tied with what God says in the very previous chapter in Ezekiel 36, where God says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we see, despite the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, God is already speaking to his people. You are not able to carry my presence, but I have a better plan, a better covenant. It is my spirit in you. And then we see here at the center of history, as it were, Jesus. Jesus, the incarnate son of God. Jesus steps in, Emmanuel, God with us. And what does John say? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt in the Greek, it's not the normal word for just to live, like he, he came and lived with us. It is a word that means he tabernacled, he, he pitched or lived in a tent. Can you see that Jesus, Jesus is the tabernacle, Jesus is the temple. Now Jesus is the presence of God with his people again. In fact, Jesus said, destroy this temple. And he's looking now at, at the temple which had been rebuilt uh, after the exile. And then Herod the Great uh, had, had made it magnificent and it was glorious. And all of Israel boasted in the temple. Jesus said, you see that temple? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. This is Herod's temple. And you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. That's in John 2. So we know that Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant through his sacrifice. What did he say to his disciples? What do we uh, very frequently say when we take communion here? He said, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The writer of Hebrews says... As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And then he quotes the Jeremiah 31 passage. He says, kind of like at Acts, he says, this is that. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jeremiah 31 prophecy. Jesus is the fulfillment that he would write the laws into our minds and write them in our hearts and that we could be the people of God. But we have a big problem here. The disciples are with Jesus, and everything is going really great. He just rode in to the city on a donkey like a king should do. The Messiah is here. Hosanna, Hosanna. And Jesus starts to say some very disturbing things, like, I'm going to go away. In fact, he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. He says, if I do not go, the helper will not come. But the disciples are probably thinking, we know you're the Messiah. You were with us in the tabernacle and with Moses and, and David and Solomon and the temple. And now here you are after all this long history. And you are God's son and we're going to be with you forever. It's going to be glorious and magnificent. And you're talking about leaving? But Jesus said as to their advantage because the helper would come. 
He said, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Remember that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in his flesh. He was empowered and anointed by the Holy Spirit. So this brings me to what is God's present plan for his presence? Where is God now? Jesus has ascended to the throne by his Father. But God is now in his people. He was with his people in the desert. He was with his people in Jerusalem. He came among his people as Jesus, the Son of God, living and walking among us. Now God is in his people. This is the fulfillment of the better covenant. He gave the Holy Spirit to every believer, everyone who calls on his name. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Not just a few not just the Levites, not just Moses who could go in and talk to God face to face. Not just the Levites who were special. They, they, they had a lot of ceremony, but they were a, a special people that God said, you can serve me. You can serve in the temple. You can serve in the tabernacle. You can help with all the sacrifices. Not just a few, but all, all of us. We have the Holy Spirit in our hearts if we have given our lives to him, if we have surrendered to him. That is, that is good news. That is good news. 1 Corinthians 3 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Listen, listen for temple. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This Word you in this passage is plural. This is God speaking and saying here through the Apostle Paul that we, the body, corporately are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of God now. In Ephesians 2, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. When you walk into this house... When the body is gathered, it's not the decor that you feel when you walk in the room. It's not an open box of Kroger cookies in the kitchen that just brings you in and makes you think, ah, oh, this feels different. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit in and among his people. It's the Holy Spirit. And we have to learn to discern and sense the Holy Spirit wherever we go. Because God is present in his people in the gathered assembly. And God is present in each of us, in the individual. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So now he's talking to each one of us, the individual. Within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Second Corinthians says, And it is God who, has, who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So it is the Holy Spirit who marks us and says, That one is mine. I own that one. There's a lot of worry uh, in the church when persecution comes about end times and, and uh, the, the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and all of that. But let me tell you, there is a mark that is stronger and more powerful than the mark of any beast. There is the mark of the Holy Spirit upon your heart. It cannot be erased. It cannot be stolen. It is the mark of the Holy Spirit on the believer. He knows who is his and he will keep them. Amen? 
He guarantees our future resurrection. We live right now in the between times, between the now, the already, the the salvation that Jesus did, and the not yet. Our future glorification, our future resurrection, a new body that doesn't have bad knees and bad backs and poor eyesight, that doesn't live so many years and get wrinkly and die. All of that will be gone, but in the meantime... We have some of the future as a deposit now guaranteeing what is to come. And he empowers us to live the way we need to live. This is something, you don't understand how glorious this is. This is something that the Israelites did not have. They could see the fire on the mountain. They could see the cloud and the fire leading them through the desert. They could see the glory of God fill the temple. But then they would turn and go to their own little tent. And there they were. There was no Holy Spirit inside of their heart. That is the new covenant of God, the Holy Spirit in us. And I think we don't realize what a precious, precious gift that is, what a powerful gift that is. The Holy Spirit is not just a force, an influence. In my generation, if you think about spirit and force and you start thinking about Star Wars and things like that, it's not like that at all. The Holy Spirit is not just an emotion. It's not just enthusiasm when somebody shouts and gets happy. It's not a pep rally, a spirit, spirit of the crowd. It's not that at all. And it's not even like the images and the metaphors that they're scriptural, they're good, they're right, but they're impersonal. Things like the Holy Spirit is fire. The Holy Spirit is water. He is wind and breath. He's oil. Those are all things to help us understand the Holy Spirit. But he's not any of those things. Those are natural things. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is equal to God, the third person of the Trinity. And I'm afraid so often, although the Trinity is a core Christian doctrine, we believe in the Trinity, but we live as though we were binitarians most of the time. Father and Son... Oh, yeah, the Spirit. The Spirit. But we don't realize the Spirit is a person. And the Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. Let me read you just some of the things that the Apostle Paul writes. I'm just going to quickly read through this list of things the Holy Spirit does. And these are all things, all verbs that that require some kind of agency, some kind of personhood. Listen. The Spirit searches all things. The Spirit knows the mind of God, teaches the content of the gospel to believers. He dwells among or within believers. He accomplishes all things. He gives life to those who believe. He cries out from within our hearts. He leads us in the ways of God. He bears witness with our spirits. He strengthens believers. He has desires in opposition to the flesh. He helps us in our weakness. He intercedes on our behalf. That's not a force. That's not just a power. He is grieved by our sinfulness. What did Moses say? What will distinguish us among all the people of the earth? The answer was God's presence. That will distinguish us. It's not our race. It's not our ethnicity. It's not the colors on our flag. It's not a building. It's not this place here on Insurance Lane. It's not our diet or laws or things that the Israelites had to set them apart. It's not even our ethics, what we, what we do and don't do, the rules that we follow now. Can I tell you what distinguishes us among all the people of the earth? It's not even spirituality. There's a lot of spirituality in the world. And it is not all of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we think that you're either over here doing the natural normal thing or you know God and you know the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, there is no kind of neutral ground over here where take it or leave it. You are either a child of God or you are a child of the devil. That's what the word teaches. There's no middle ground. You are either dead in your sins and trespasses or you are alive in Christ Jesus. There is no fence sitting. There is no middle ground. So you either have the Holy Spirit of God as a believer, or you have a dead human spirit 
and maybe some other spirits that are hovering around you as an unbeliever. And you have no defense against that unless you know Jesus. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for his presence. It is the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, that distinguishes us among all the people of the earth, both corporately and individually. So what does spirit fullness look like? We have the spirit. We have the deposit. But do we always walk in the fullness of the spirit? The Israelites had the presence in the tabernacle, but was the glory always so thick that not even Moses could enter? So God's glory and his manifest or felt presence, that's his sovereign will to give or to withhold. Yes, we are marked by the Holy Spirit. We belong to him. We have a guarantee and a deposit. But are we living and walking daily in the fullness of the Spirit. Jesus walked among the disciples, and that's pretty amazing, but if we'd have been there and seen a crowd, I don't think there was a halo over his head and a great shaft of light on him wherever he went. He looked like a normal man until he started doing some pretty super stuff. He had a flesh and a body like this, but what happened when he went up onto what we call the Mount of Transfiguration? Then his glory was revealed, and the cloud, and the voice, and, and, and the disciples are just, they don't know what to do. So God's glory and his manifest presence can vary. Paul wrote to the believers at Ephesus. He's not, he's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to churches in this reason, region around Ephesus, uh, probably a circular letter. In Ephesians 5, he says, be filled with the Spirit. He doesn't say, you've already been filled, don't worry about it, just hang on till glory comes. He says, no, 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 you have something more to do. Be filled with the Spirit. If we have the fullness of the Spirit in our lives, then we will show the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of the Spirit is what we call that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Do we have these? Are we walking in these? Are we missing patience? Are we missing love? That's the keystone. If we are walking in spiritfulness, we will have the fruit of righteousness in our lives. We will live sanctified lives, holy because He is holy. We are no longer trying to do rule after rule, regulation after regulation, law after law, just so that God won't destroy us, so we don't accidentally touch something holy and ruin our lives and that of our family. We're, that's not that kind of a righteousness. It's not by works. It's not by what we can do by our own power. It is the holiness of God that he has put within us in his Holy Spirit so that we can fulfill the requirements of the law and live a sanctified life before him. Amen? We can't do that on our own. It's been tried. You'll fail without his Holy Spirit. When we are full of the Spirit, we'll judge all things by the Spirit and not the flesh. Have you read Facebook lately? Have you, do you read the news? Honestly, these days, I try to read the news as little as possible. I scan the headlines just so I'm not blindsided by something, but I don't want to spend a lot of time there because every time I go into the news, I come out feeling dirtier than when I went in. Amen? Smith Wigglesworth would not allow even a newspaper to enter his home. It had to be left outside. He was illiterate until he was in his mid-twenties, and once he learned to read, his wife taught him to read, the only thing he read for the rest of his life was the Bible. He figured he had wasted or lost so much time not being able to read. What could be better than the Bible for the rest of his life? When we do that, we learn to judge all things by the Spirit and not the flesh. What does God say? What does God think about that? Is that, is that what scrolling by on my feed? Is that, what does the Spirit say about that? Is that true? Is that something I should really be worried about? Is that something that should disturb the peace of the Lord in my heart? Should I quickly write a respond and put them in their place and teach them and try to win an argument with the internet? Should I do that? Ask the Holy Spirit. Let him tell you. Let him tell you. If we are full of his spirit, we should hear his voice. 
Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. This is something I'm really trying to press into. I'm spending time before the Lord saying, oh, Jesus, you promised that I would hear your voice. And I know that you are speaking. Please open my ears. Help me to hear what you're saying. Help me to tune out all the distractions. Help me to tune out everything that would prevent me from hearing. If there's any hand of the enemy upon me or around me, Lord, break it and help me to hear the voice of my shepherd. That is the privilege of the saints of God because he has put his spirit in us. We should eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Paul does not write to the Corinthians, spiritual gifts, that's nice, but, you know, there are 364 other days of the year, every day is not Christmas, don't worry about the gifts. Okay, he says, no, eagerly desire spiritual gifts because they build up the body, they build us up, they connect us with the Spirit of God. They allow the Spirit to be released through us into the corporate body and into our neighborhoods and into our neighbors and into our lost family members and into our workplaces and people who have needs. It's not optional. We should eagerly desire spiritual gifts. We shouldn't quench the Spirit. We shouldn't despise prophecy if we are full of the Spirit. We must love and meditate on the Word of God. This was authored by the Holy Spirit. It is too precious to neglect and to ignore. And we have the very author of the book in us to help us understand it. You cannot come to this as an unbeliever and just read it and say, oh, okay, now I get it, unless the Holy Spirit opens it to you. The Pharisees had the same law that the disciples had, the same law that Jesus had, and yet they read it, they poured it over it, they memorized it, they put it into practice, except that they missed it. They missed it badly because of their hard hearts, their stubborn hearts, that religious pride. They couldn't see the truth even though it was written before them. Even though it testified about Jesus and he's standing in front of them, they couldn't recognize him. Even when he is healing in the synagogues, even when his words are dripping with grace and truth, their hearts are so hard. They had the law. They had the writing, but they didn't have the author. They didn't have the Holy Spirit to open their eyes and reveal it to them. If we are full of the Spirit, we will love the Word and meditate on the Word. We will read it regularly. We will eat this bread from heaven as often as we eat the bread that feeds our mortal bodies. And we will obey it. If we are full of the Spirit, we'll not only read it, but we'll do what it says. Amen? We will put it into practice to honor God. So we must be a people who are full of the Spirit. That is the covenant promise that God has for us, that we would be a people of His presence. As we close, I want to invite you to listen now to the Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. When is God grieved? God is grieved by sin. God is grieved by unbelief. God is grieved by unforgiveness. You should hear, you should, if you were here last week, you should recognize some of these things. These are the same things that hinder our prayers that Pastor Jay was talking about. The same things that hinder our prayers are the things that grieve God, that grieve the Holy Spirit. If we are grieving the Holy Spirit of God, we are still marked by Him. We still have a deposit. We still have a guarantee of a future resurrection. But we have distanced ourselves from the God who gives life, the God who gives wisdom, the God who says, I want you to step in to the fullness of what I have for you. I paid a high price. I sent my son. We've already tried the follow rules, lists of rules approach. That didn't work. I have put my spirit in you so that you may obey, so that my laws are written on your hearts, so that my words would be on your lips. Let us put away sin from our lives.
unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is a huge barrier, both to our prayers and to the fullness of God in our lives. When you forgive someone, it doesn't justify what they did. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't say anything about that person and what they did, whether it was right or wrong. It says, I am not going to hold it against them because God has forgiven me of my sin. I will release them from their sin. I will forgive and I will give love. That is very freeing. And it sets us free from a lot of kinds of bondage. Remember that before the glory filled the tabernacle and the temple, they were cleaned, they were purified, they were cleansed. In fact, the design of the tabernacle, remember I said the entrance was on the east side. Well, to get to the holy place and the holiest place, the most holy place, you had to go through the courtyard past the altar of sacrifice and the basin. You couldn't even get close to the presence of God before sin and impurity was dealt with. We are not cleansed by our own works today, brothers and sisters, but by repentance and faith. We don't have to just dip in the baptismal pool. We don't have to wear special clothes like the Levites did. We don't have to follow a list of regulations and have the whole calendar is full with sacrifices and things. But we do have to repent of our sin and come to him in faith. We have to ask the Lord, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Remove every hindrance and obstacle. Remove every sin and help me to fulfill the righteous requirements of your law. if the uh, musicians or music team could come help us. I read a quote about revival at the beginning. And we've been spending a lot of time thinking about revival, praying for the presence of the Lord, praying for the direction of the Lord. But if we want to see revival, the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit in our nation or our region, we need to stop grieving the Lord grieving the spirit, and we need to seek the Lord in fervent prayer. I'm excited about these, this weekend of prayer. I'm excited about what God is doing in Riverstone, that you can walk into this house and feel the presence, feel the presence of the Lord in this place, in his body. That, I cannot tell you what a liberty I feel here. You truly are my family. I love you, and I feel so much peace and so much presence here, but I know the Lord has more. He has more for us as a body, and he has more for us as individuals. If we're going to press in and go where God wants us to go, we need to learn to follow the cloud and the fire. We need to learn to see with eyes of the Spirit and discern what God has for us. And if we're going to see this nation changed, if we're going to see this hard city of Charlottesville changed, it's not going to be by voting. It's not going to be by politicking or protesting. It's not going to be by Facebook. I'm sorry to say, it's going to be by the Holy Spirit of God. He is the only one who can do that. The Holy Spirit of God. Would you stand with me, please? Thank you, Jesus. Let's just take let's just take a minute and just point our hearts toward the Lord and just listen to him for a moment. Holy Spirit, speak. Come, Holy Spirit, and speak. Come, Spirit of God, and speak to your people. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, God. altars are open I would rather you have I would rather have you listen to the Holy Spirit than anything that I would say any word that I have brought this morning it's useless unless the Lord breathes upon it unless it is true listen to the Holy Spirit if you have not died to yourself if you have not accepted Jesus his perfect sacrifice and given your life to him 
There's nowhere else to go but Jesus. That's the first stop. If you haven't done that, I would ask you to run, not walk to the altar. Cry out to the Lord and say, save me. Give me this Holy Spirit. Redeem me and cleanse me from my sin. That's the first place to go. Most of us are walking with the Lord. But if you feel like you have been grieving the Spirit of God, if there was something on that when I was talking about sin and holiness, something comes to your mind, oh God, I'm sorry for that. God, why is that still in my life? I've been struggling with this for so long. I ask you to come and lay that before the Lord. If you have been afflicted with unbelief, if you have rejected the Holy Spirit altogether, if you've rejected His presence moving in His church and in His body, that grieves the Spirit to be rejected by His own people. Repent. Repent this morning. If you need to come here or stand at your, or at your place, then do so. If you would like more power for holiness, Oh God, I see the sin in my life. I'm not happy with it either, but I feel powerless to change. There is a cure for sin, and it is the Holy Spirit. These bodies will be with us until we die, but there is a spirit fullness that can enable us to be sanctified. That is God's will, to be holy because He is holy. Ask the Lord to empower you to live holy lives before Him. If you want to see more fruit in your life, I want to see more joy, God. I want to see more patience, God. I don't have enough love and compassion. I get angry too quickly, too easily. Ask the Lord to display more of the fruit of the Spirit in your lives. Lord, give me more of your gifts. I want to be used by you. I want to hear what you're saying. I want to hear your voice, God. If you want revival to begin in you and in this church, then cry out to the Lord for it. These altars are open. We will worship with some song, with some music. But this is a time I'm calling you to prayer. I'm calling you to encounter the Holy Spirit of God who's been poured out in our house, in our midst, in our hearts. Ask the Lord, ask the Lord what He has for you this morning. Thank you for being a part of Riverstone Church. I hope today's message encouraged you to take a step closer to Christ. If there is anything we can pray for or talk with you about, please visit our website at riverstonechurch.net. May the Lord bless you this week and may you walk in all of His promises and plans for your life.